Temptation is a daily occurrence in the life of the saint. Yet, temptation in and of itself is not sin. It is only when the saint enters into temptation by flirting with it that it can become sin. David failed to flee from his carnal temptation, and by entering into that temptation, it destroyed him. This is the 21st sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 11. 2 Samuel and chapter 11, the first five verses. The first five verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning for our admonition, for our warning, and for our growth in the knowledge of the Lord. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. The Apostle James, writing in his first chapter, chapter 1, beginning of verse 13 through verse 15, By the same spirit, the apostle writes, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, Bring it forth death. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with so many warnings in these chapters. It is unbelievable that God would give us so many warnings, and yet we fall so often because of the temptation that is so prevalent within us. So David and Bathsheba now as we have read, are now at a crossroads. And as a result of David's irresponsibility, remember, when he should have been on the battlefield with Joab and the men of Israel, when all the men of Israel were out fighting, it was the time and the season when David should have been out there fighting. Instead, he entered into willful temptation by spying upon Bathsheba as she bathed. Bathsheba, as we have already learned was not without fault, since she was parading herself immodestly so that King David could see her from his own private rooftop. They knew they could see each other. They all knew, all of Israel knew that David was home, tarrying about Jerusalem. They knew where he lived. Bathsheba knew where he lived. So both David and Bathsheba 
were playing with fire, not being vigilant in pursuit of their own piety and holiness before God. They were both playing with fire. And when you play with fire, when you take fire into your own bosom, you no doubt will be burned. So both parties were playing with fire by not being vigilant in pursuit of their piety and holiness before God. As for David, he was neither sick nor hindered by any of the other affairs that a king might have to take upon himself that he had to tend to, and yet he still tarried at Jerusalem when he should have been on the battlefield. His duty was to be on the battlefield with Joab and his men for the pursuit of his enemies. But because he refrained from that which he was called to do, he was delinquent in his kingly duties, he then was tempted. And so... As ease takes hold of his psyche, he decides to, which was no fault of his own, it's a hot day, he decides to retire to the rooftop to relax. Many hours in the day he had to himself. Time was on his hands. And once too much time is on someone's hands, as the saying goes, it's the devil's playground. Calvin levels some very harsh criticisms against the king of Israel. Calvin says this, David did not carry out the charge which was committed to him, thus giving an opening to the devil. The temptation which came to him then was like a payment for his moral laxness. And because of his wanting too much relaxation, notice, and because of his wanting too much relaxation, he wasn't investing the 86,400 seconds of his day into things which were profitable, but rather he was paying too much time for his relaxation. Calvin continues, he did not think of what God had called him to and of how much need there was in the country which should have called him here and there, end quote. David's moral laxness, coupled with Bathsheba's indiscretion, became a powder keg, a powder keg ready to explode, if not mortified, immediately. And that is what each of us should be reminded of each of these individuals should have been mortifying their temptations, their lusts. As soon as their lust began to erupt, they should have immediately killed it. Instead of, instead of killing it, instead of mortifying it, they coddled it. David was looking at Bathsheba. Bathsheba was purifying herself in, open, in an open place where men could see her, where the king, in fact, could see her. So instead of Mortifying these actions, they coddled their sins. By coddling their temptation, they turned into sin and destroyed them. John Owen famously stated this. He said, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst ye live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, end quote. Now this was not the season for laxness and irresponsibility. It was the time for mortification. And not only did David shirk from his responsibilities of war in the battlefield, he shirked his responsibilities of war in the battlefield of his own mind, because that's really where the battlefield is. So what should have been the response of both parties? What should David have done? What should Bathsheba have done? What should have been their responsibilities? Well, they first should have known better than to tempt themselves with carnal lusts and opportunities to bring about sin. Second, they should have turned immediately 
from their temptation when the feeling of passion began to present themselves. Notice, when David saw her, he sent and inquired after the woman. He was entering into that temptation. Whenever we are faced with temptation, we should immediately identify the triggers that set off that feeling of weakness. And then, like Joseph, flee from it. In terror, because these things are terrible, because they do destroy men and families and nations and kingdoms. When Joseph was enticed by the beauty of Potiphar's wife, he ran in terror, lest he be taken by his own lust. You see, he understood his weakness. He had already prepared himself to flee temptation whenever it appeared. Notice, he prepared himself before the temptation came upon him. He took pains to reconcile in his mind that if this or that or the other thing would happen, he would respond in this way or that way or the other way. In the case of Bathsheba, Calvin observes again, he says, Now in regard to Bathsheba, she is not to be condemned because she bathed, but she should have exercised discretion so as not to be seen. For a chaste and upright woman will not show herself in such a way as to allure men nor be like a net of the devil to start a fire. Bathsheba, therefore, was immodest in that regard, end quote. But as we have already surmised, perhaps Bathsheba, knowing that the king's terrace was in the eye shot of her bathing, did she not wish to stir the passion of the king? Why was she there? She could see David. If David knew she was beautiful, obviously he could see her. And therefore, is she not also to be blamed? Again, once again, Adam Clark is suspicious of, of Bathsheba's motives. He says, quote, How could any woman of delicacy expose herself where she could be so fully and openly viewed? Did she not know that she was at least in view of the king's terrace? Was there no design in all of this? End quote. Now, if indeed Bathsheba was indiscreet and immodest, which we believe she was, What lessons can we learn of her actions? What lessons can we learn from her actions? Well, first, Christian women, as supposedly she was a Christian woman, a God-fearing woman, Christian women must be sensitive and mindful to properly cover their bodies so as to not be regarded as temptresses. In other words, modest dress wear is a mark of Christian decency. The way we dress telegraphs our witness before God and man, whether it is good or whether it is evil. When Adam and Eve initially sinned in order for them to cover the shame of their nakedness, they made loincloths out of leaves. But these were only intended to cover their private parts. They were not sufficient to to mask their shame because they were still scantily clothed. These coverings were therefore incomplete, so they were not really covered. They only covered a certain portion of their anatomy. So, God steps in and He makes what the Hebrew calls tunics. He makes tunics for them to cover their entire bodies. They were fully clothed with the badger skins. In order to bring this lesson into our modern era, which has completely been taken over by pagan licentiousness, immodesty, and carnal appetites, women and men as well should be covered to the point where the possibility of temptation is avoided. Now, this does not mean that you should wear a burqa. 
It doesn't mean you should go buy a tent and put it on your head and just have eye slits. But it does call for a degree of consideration and discretion without over-exaggeration. A good rule of thumb is for women to be mindful of low cup tops, tops that are showing any cleavage. They should be mindful of short skirts and dresses that are especially tight-fitting. You go to Walmart today, it's pornographic. These kinds of dress wear are not becoming a Christian woman. It's not modest. What we have today within the church is the notion that as long as a young woman shows up, nothing should be said about their inappropriate dress wear. We're just happy they show up. This is wrong. This is the wrong way to think. The leadership of the church is to gently, therefore, admonish those women who are obviously ignorant of the Lord's commandments concerning how they are to dress while they're in the Lord's house, on the Lord's day especially. Just think about it. If they are dressing immodestly in the Lord's day, in the Lord's house for worship, how are they dressing while in the world when they think no one is watching? Furthermore, it is the duty of the ministers of the church to protect the young men from female immodesty, lest they too fall into temptation and the destruction of their own carnal lust as David did. So ladies, if you wish to wear immodest clothing or sensual revealing attire, wear them for your husband in the privacy of your own home when you're alone, but not for the public eye to behold and certainly not around the house in front of your children. What you wear around the house, you know, and some, some ladies say, well, I'm home. I'm, I'm in my own private home. Well, wait a minute. Are you not telegraphing to your children what proper attire is and what is inappropriate? We are always under the watchful eye of God. What you wear around the house telegraphs to the children what is appropriate and what is not. Are we not open in the eye of God at every moment of every day? Or does he just see us on the Lord's day while we're in the Lord's house when everyone else can see us? We are to have our minds transformed, not to be conformed to the world, but rather to be transformed. Number two, women should also be mindful of their body language in public. A woman's body language speaks volumes as to who they are. Women need to understand that their body language can be a powerful tool, either for good or for evil. As with any powerful device, care must be taken to ensure that your femininity is not used perversely or to lead others astray. Moreover, your femininity is not given to you by God in order to draw attention to yourself or to draw attention from other men. It is to show forth the glory of God. And once you become a wife for the pleasure of your husband, we have a responsibility every moment of every day because we stand in the eye of God. Number three, Bathsheba was openly bathing when David saw her, which resulted in his lusting after her. And this should teach us that when we frequent the beach... And I love the beach. I love the sand. I love the waves. I love the water. I love the warm air. I love the sunshine. But when we frequent the beach, we ought to be mindful of how we dress for bathing. In these days, it's hard to even find a beach where you can go without being violated in your mind, in your eye gate. We should also be mindful of where we go to bathe. So if you're going to a beach where modesty 
is an unknown reality, maybe you shouldn't go there. Maybe you should find a family beach. I remember one summer when my wife and I were meeting a Christian family in Florida while traveling. They were two young ladies and their folks that were our students. And we were traveling. We said, well, let's meet at a midway point. But this midway point, unbeknownst to us, was a place frequented by young beach lovers. A huge mistake. And I am no prude, nor have I never seen such things, but I can tell you it was the most uncomfortable and embarrassing event for all of us. And I can guarantee there were plenty of professing Christian young ladies there that were walking around almost naked. All sense of modesty was thrown out the window because of the location. All of a sudden, we're different people at the beach than we are in the Lord's house or on the, or in Walmart. How is that? Why is that? What were we thinking? What are we thinking? Oh, but there's an objection here and I can hear it. I can hear now what some of you might be thinking. Well, this is so prudish. This is so Amish. This is so not modern. We're Americans. We're modern folk. Are we to revert to the oppression of the Arab nations? Or, you know, when I go to the beach, I need to get that even tan. And if I cover up, then I will not get evenly tanned. Or, we go to the beach because it's the place where we can go around half naked and blend in without ridicule and nobody can see us. And my answer is this. So, what do you suggest? Is it right for you to go, ladies, around wearing a bikini in the sight of dozens of other men so they can lust after you while you are with your husband and your children? Now, would you wear a bikini while shopping at Walmart, even though some people do? You know, we laugh. We laugh, but we're living in Babylon. We're living in Babylon. And I love the, the female body is the next guy, but we're living in Babylon. And we think it's okay to be as the Babylonians. Or perhaps immodest dressing is a pride issue. Okay. So you're beautiful and you know it. So is it lawful for everyone to be graced with the beauty of your body? Is the beauty of your body for everyone else? Other men included? And you might argue, well, it's my body. I, I, I can show it if I want. Well, sounds like what the people that want to abort their babies say. It's my body. I'll do what I want with it. No, it's not your body. It belongs to God first and foremost and to your husband. So is this what it's come to? That we might argue in such a way? And once again, I am not suggesting that you go to the beach wearing a tent or a full body suit, even though that is what was once considered beachwear for both men and women, by the way. Just look at the history of beachwear. Men were covered as if they were wearing a full body suit. What I am saying, however, is why do you do what you do? And why do you wear what you wear? Why are you, when you get dressed in the morning, or when you get dressed, period, why are you dressing the way you're dressing? Now, some commentators surmise that Bathsheba might have been bathing in a public bath where David could see her. Some surmise that in certain towns, there were baths in the town square where women would go to bathe. And that makes matters worse, since Bathsheba was parading herself publicly on the beach. Or as if she was at the beach. So what further lessons can we learn from David's actions? 
Well, it seems for David, he, he was looking elsewhere for excitement. There wasn't enough excitement with his many wives. There wasn't enough excitement fighting on the battle for the glory of God. So he was looking for something else. He was not content. We read nothing of his many wives as if he was relaxing. Why not relax with his wife? Or with one of his many wives? Where were they? Did he send them away while he was relaxing? So that he could go on the roof and spy out the women? Now remember, all of the men were fighting in the field. He was like a rooster in the hen house. And he knew it. Maybe that's why he stayed home. Why was he not spending time with his children? Many children. Why was he surfing the public baths of Jerusalem with his eyes as so many husbands surf the public internet looking for lustful excitement? Why? Was he not content? Was he not thankful with all the things that God had given him? Elevated him from nothing to everything? Unlike Job... David failed to make a covenant with his eyes. Notice what Job said. He says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? David had so many wives, but he wanted more. He wanted another. And it wasn't so much as we saw last time, it wasn't so much that he just wanted another woman. He wanted someone else's woman. This leads me to the next problem David was grappling with. Secondly, David was covetous. He was coveting another man's wife. A clear violation of the Tenth Commandment. Notice Exodus 20 verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his neighbor's. And David would have been writing that down in his own handwriting when he wrote the book of the law. A violation of this commandment, as we shall see, is the root of all evil. David's covetousness was clearly a lusting after that thing which was not lawful. James identifies covetousness as lust. Know what he says. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But here's verse 14. But every man... How many men? Everyone. Every man. How many men? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. His own lusts and enticed. That's what David was dealing with. His own lusts. David's temptation was pure lust. The devil wasn't tempting him. Neither was the devil making him relinquish his wartime responsibilities. That was all on David. It was all on David. And it was David's covetous heart which was natural to his Adamic nature. His covetousness was pure greed. Think about it. He wanted something that was unlawful. That was greed. He had everything, still he wanted more. God gave David everything, but he had to have Bathsheba. And that was forbidden. And that's what he wanted because, probably because it was forbidden. And I'm the king and I can get anything I want and do anything I want and have everyone and have anyone that I want. And so when he saw that she was a goodly, chaste, godly woman, pleasant to the eye, something to be desired, he took her and he lay with her. Sound familiar? Solomon tells us this in Proverbs 27, 20, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. 
What David should have done immediately upon being tempted to to covet another man's wife was to give thanks to God for all that God had given him and be content and call in his other wives and repent for not going out to war with Joab. Thirdly, David's sin, however, was not only a violation of the Tenth Commandment, it was a violation of every commandment. By desiring Bathsheba and unlawfully taking her to himself, David broke the first commandment by being an idolater. He was looking at her as as an idol that he wanted. He was looking at Bathsheba in an idolatrous fashion, thereby breaking the first commandment. David also breaks the second commandment since he is ready to bow down before Bathsheba in submission to her beauty. Notice, he looks upon her and he melts. What kind of man is that? No self-control? So he breaks the second commandment since he is ready to bow down before her in submission to her beauty in spite of everything that God had warned him against. David breaks the third commandment by taking upon himself the title of Christian, the name of the Lord, while violating his witness. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. You're violating your testimony. To take the Lord's name in vain is to disregard his sovereignty over your life by violating your witness as a man or a woman under his lordship. David violated the fourth commandment also by resting when he should have been warring. David violated the fifth commandment by not honoring his father and his mother who were faithful to one another throughout their lives. David violated the sixth commandment by putting himself in a position to do whatever it took to satisfy his greed, even if it meant murder, which he ultimately succumbs to. David also violates the seventh commandment by committing adultery. And he violates the eighth commandment by stealing another man's wife and taking her for his own. You see, David's actions stole a sacred bond. He destroyed a sacred bond that Bathsheba had with her husband by interfering with it and then destroying its purity. David violated the ninth commandment by taking deceitful advantage over his neighbor, which is the same thing as bearing false witness. And so we can see how a violation of the tenth commandment is a violation of every commandment. The fourth point. If that wasn't enough, David is also guilty of hatred. Now, one may argue that David might have loved Bathsheba, but think, let's think about this. Did he really love her? Did he even know the girl? Or could it be argued more convincingly that David really only loved himself? He really didn't care about, about the woman, about Bathsheba. He only wanted to use her for himself because she could satisfy his carnal lusts. Because if David loved the woman, he would have wanted her to be chaste before God and faithful to her husband. That's what we want from our women. But apparently David, and we, you know, we all love David, but apparently he didn't care. Because his worldly lusts took him over. He became out of his mind. Accountable to his insanity, responsible for his actions, but clearly out of his mind. His worldly looks took over and he was now in the clutches of his own self-deception that he could violate the commandments of God and get away with it. Isn't that what we think every day of the week? We can violate God's commandment and we get away with it. Oh, that's not how it works. Brethren, that is not how it works. You cannot violate God's commandments and get away with it. Consider the progression of temptation. Once again, James gives us that progression in chapter 1. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. 
First, James sets forth an undergirding principle. God does not tempt men to sin. This was all on David. God didn't have to tempt David. He doesn't have to tempt any of us because we sin all by ourselves. We are tempted from within our own evil hearts. We don't need any help. This is his second principle. Every man is tempted by his own lusts. Notice, we're all tempted by our own lusts. We are tempted because of who we are by nature. There is no tempter other than the lust which lies deep within each and every one of us. Notice verse 14, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own, capital O, capital W, capital N, his own lust and enticed. So David was enticed from within his own sinful nature. Thirdly, once temptation is entered into, lust is said to conceive, to conceive is to have life. Once that sin is entered into, once you you cross the threshold of, of temptation into sin, it begins to take a life of its own. And once a man enters into temptation, his lust takes on a life of its own, ready to be birthed. And once that final action is taken, it brings forth death. Because lust becomes a formidable life force. It brings man to sin. Because lust begets lawlessness. And once that lawlessness of sin is complete and the lust is consummated, death is the result. Death is always the result. Now what is amazing to me in our day, even within the churches of Jesus Christ, which gives me no pleasure to say this, of which we are all guilty of, sin is trivialized. We do not recognize the horror the depravity, the misery, the destruction that sin brings. It's trivialized. Say, oh, I'm a sinner. To even say that should strike terror into our hearts. So sin is trivialized. There's no longer any fear of violating God's commandments. Temptation is now something to be played with just to see how far we can go without being snared by it. The irony of this is that by playing with lustful things to see how far we can go without getting snared by it, is itself a snare. The playing with sin is itself a snare because it snares you. You can't get away from it. It's only a matter of time till lust conceives and brings forth sin, and that sin brings forth death. David was on the fast track to destruction. Instead of regaining his composure, he moves forward. By inquiring who the woman is. Okay, maybe he thought she was single. Maybe he thought that she was fair game for just another wife. Let's give him that. But when they say to him, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David did not say, Oh, she is not to be trifled with. doesn't say that. Instead of regaining his composure, he moves forward by inquiring who the woman is. He does the exact opposite. He does the exact opposite of what he should have done to escape from his own snare. Rather than kindling the grace of God by falling on his face or by doing what Joseph did, by running away in terror, David kindles the fire of his own lechery, his own wickedness, And he is snared by it. 
Again, Calvin, dealing with this, says, quote, When we have some evil thought, and that could be anything, it could be anger, it could be selfishness, it could be anything. He says, when we have some evil thought, let us not nourish it until our heart is finally set on fire so that we go on to carry it out as well as merely thinking of it. The battle should stay in the mind, he's saying. We should fight it and kill it while it's in our mind. We can't let it break forth. He continues, nor let us encourage ourselves in a perverse desire and mix it in with other vicious thoughts that we already have. So this is what we must consider when we see that David inquired who this woman was. With that in mind, let us remember that if we are in the process of doing evil, we must immediately break it off and turn our back on it and remove ourselves from every opportunity that we may have to conceive and carry out the evil which we have premeditated. This is our old, too frequent experience every day. To go beyond David, we must ask, what causes men to abandon themselves to evil like this? Well, it is because they do not resist evil when it initially approaches them but excuse and flatter themselves as though they wanted to draw Satan to themselves and to plot together with him, saying, in fact, I have made a breach for you. Enter boldly into sin and fear thou not. So once David hears she's the wife of another man, he should have known that he was in big trouble. Moreover, and this is amazing, he knew the man. He knew the man. And he knew the man was fighting for the honor of Christ. He knew the man was, was fighting on the battlefield with Joab for the, for the glory of Jerusalem and for the honor of the king. He knew the man. But he also knew where the man was. In David's mind, it was a perfect situation to secretly betray both Uriah and the trust he had from the nation of Israel. So disregarding the danger, David sends for her. What a tremendous mistake. Note the particulars of the event. First, David sends his ambassadors. Now was there no shame in this? That David would openly send others to bring a married woman to him? What was he thinking? Oh, I want her. She's married. That's unlawful relationship, but hey, fellas, go get it for me. Because I'm the king. Pride, arrogance. Was there no shame that David would openly send others to bring a married woman to him with whom he would commit a grievous act of adultery? Obviously, he didn't care. Not only didn't he care about doing the deed, he didn't care that anyone else knew. Besides, he was the king. God loved him. I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want. I'll just repent later. Secondly, David just takes her. The intention of this phrase is that not only did David send for her, the Hebrew says he seized upon her in order to completely subdue her and to compel her to submit. Here's a man who is so lusting after this woman that he is seizing upon her. Third, He actually proceeds with the act. You know, you'd think that once she got to the king's chamber, he'd say, you know what? We we can't do this. Not David. 
Let's have at it. But more astonishing is we don't read anywhere that Bathsheba protested in any way whatsoever. We read nowhere where she might have said to the king, Oh my Lord, do not such a terrible thing as to betray the Lord in my marriage vow. Where I didn't see that. Was it in another book somewhere? Was it in the lost book of Enoch, maybe, that we find this? No, we see it nowhere. No protestation. The scripture could have recorded a protest by the woman, but it is conspicuously silent. And this begs the question, why? I, I love to ask the whys. Not just what, I see what happened. Why did it happen? How did this thing happen? So why was there no protest? Could it be that our assessment of Bathsheba's flirtation be accurate? Adam Clark seems to think so. Notice what he says. We hear nothing of her of her reluctance. And there is no evidence that she was taken by force. Even through David's mind, he would seize upon her. She was perfectly fine with that. Fourthly, David knew that the chances of her conceiving were slim since she had just been purified from her uncleanness. And we read that in these verses. She was... The window of conception was, was, it was safe. And it's assured, at least in David's mind, that this act would be kept secret. So, David thinks all the stars are aligning in my favor. And he sends for her. Having satisfied his lustful curiosity, because that's really what it was. We don't hear that she tarried at Jerusalem. We don't hear that David says, oh, Bathsheba, I wish you could be my wife. I really love you. He doesn't say, I'm really sorry. You know, we did a horrible thing. Let's go repent. Nope. See ya. Go home. He dispenses with her and she returns to her own house as if nothing happened. But something did happen, didn't it? And it was about to bring ruin upon the house of David and all of Israel because God will not be mocked. And so Bathsheba conceives. Amazing. Wait a minute. I thought we had an open window to fool around like this, to do this dastardly deed. But no, God will not be mocked. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Because conception is a direct intervention of God through the means of intimacy. Without God blessing the intimacy, there can be no conception. And yet Bathsheba conceives by the lustful, adulterous king making it plain that there had been intimacy by another man since Uriah, her lawful husband, was in the field of battle. But this was God's plan. God was going to use this intervention to show the entire human race what happens when lust conceives. And he is going to humble David, who by this time has become so full of himself that he's unrecognizable. But because he is a good, gracious, and merciful God, he uses even this horrible sin for the advancement of his kingdom through the death of the child and the birth of Solomon. For David, however, the worst is yet to come. As he seeks to cover his sin by the murder of a righteous man who has committed himself to the service of the king, to the honor of God and to the city of Jerusalem. We shall explore that next when we continue in the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.